Hey, welcome to the podcast for the Kelly Cotrera Show for Monday, September 21st. Coming up, we will speak with women's rights lawyer Gloria Allred on the passing of Supreme Court Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What happens next for America? And last night, wow, Schitt's Creek swept the comedy categories at the Emmys. They made history doing that. So how big of a boost will this be for our local film and TV industry here in Toronto and beyond? But first of all, let's start off with the star exclusive. It's a huge story. And this is great news for people that live in, and work in Oakville. And Ottawa is saying to uh, sources that half a billion dollars will uh, right now they're they're toying with they're willing to put that up into financing electric vehicle production in Oakville with some money coming from the provincial government, according to the Toronto Star. But uh, it could allow the Ford plant to stay open past uh, 2025, which is basically the deadline. They're making the Ford Edge right now. But after that ends, it's all left up in the air. Like, what's going to happen to the Ford plant in Oakville? And that plant employs about 4,000 people. So uh, Ford Motor Company and its main union are in the midst of labor negotiations. There's a deadline tonight at midnight. And there's a push for retooling the plant for massive production of electronic vehicles and so i guess the question is do we want to invest in this what's our what's our return on investment how important is it that we look forward like this i want to welcome to the program daniel breton who is ceo of the electric mobility uh, canada and uh he knows his stuff wrote a book on on evs welcome to the show good to have you on nice to be there hey daniel tell me a, a little bit about electric mobility canada what do you guys do uh, well, actually, uh, this is one of the oldest associations in the world. We started in 2006, and we promote electric mobility, whether it's for light-duty vehicles or buses or trucks. And uh, for the first 10 years, I mean, it was pretty quiet, to, to say the least. But now things are really exploding because there are so many new models coming to market, whether it's, uh, as I said, you know, cars, trucks, buses, even snowmobiles. Uh, and the future is electric. So uh, it's very good news for us to read this morning that the federal government in re- is interested in investing in that because uh, we at EMC uh, believe that we have to fight climate change and air pollution, but we have to create jobs at the same time. So uh, this is a very good step in the right direction. Yeah, Ottawa is basically willing to do what it takes to bring EV production to Ontario. My question is, is the demand there and is the infrastructure there? I mean, or is this a case of if you build it, we will come, as in we will adapt? Well, actually, the demand is there. The real problem is supply. Uh, most dealers in Canada don't have electric vehicles on the lots, so it's hard to buy an electric vehicle there when there's none to buy. So uh, as you see uh, right now in Ontario, Quebec, and B.C., uh, demand you know, keeps rising you know, month after month after month. Maybe except in the spring during uh, during COVID nineteen, the start of COVID nineteen, but I mean uh, sales are going up everywhere in the world, uh, and we know that between now and twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, uh, electric vehicles and gas vehicles will be pretty much at par because of the price of batteries that are going down. So, uh, so the future is electric. I mean, it's not just me that's saying this, but many economists and scientists. Okay, beyond, you know, getting the uh, retooling the Ford plant for, um, you know, production of EV, can you talk to uh, the ancillary businesses that stand to 
actually, uh, you know, grow if we're investing in electrical electric vehicle uh, production in the province? Well, I mean, this is more than just uh, the tooling industry. It's about electricians. It's about uh, it's about uh, people who work in construction. Because, as you said, infrastructures have to be built, and uh, this is will happen in all the regions in Canada. So uh, this is why we have to go at this in a logical way, so that we get more and more cars in, but we have to build more and more infrastructures, and. Uh, and there's even a case for heavy-duty vehicles that are coming to market. I mean, we have Canadian companies in Ontario, in Manitoba, and BC, and Quebec that are building trucks and buses that are partially or fully electric. So, uh, so there's a big market for there for for Canada and for the for North America as a whole. You've worked in this industry for a while. You've you've you know uh, watched yeah, it grow. <laughs> Where's the pushback going to come from? Well, that's a very good question. Actually, the pushback sometimes will come from oil companies, uh, some OEMs, because not all uh, not all vehicle manufacturers are, you know, as as a forward thinking as Ford or GM or Tesla, for that matter. Um, but there's there there's a lot that we have to say about education because a lot of people don't know about electric cars. They're worried about, let's say, the battery won't last, while the battery can last for more than the lifetime of the car. So a lot has to be said about education. And people in Ontario, like Plug and Drive and EV Societies, do a great job, but we have to do more. Okay, one of the things that you could educate me on right now, you were talking about the life of a battery. I know this from uh, being in school for radio and TV. We take out the cameras and the battery would just drain because of the cold weather. Um, have yeah. we advanced uh, enough that we can drive EVs in a cold climate like Ontario and, and Canada in general has for much of the year? Oh, actually, uh, five years ago, I went from Montreal to Detroit uh, at minus 25 in an electric car, and there was no issue. So if that was good five years ago, it's only getting easier month after month after month as we have new infrastructures and better batteries, more, you know, better performing batteries. And now they have installed for most uh, cars um, what we call battery warmers. So that especially when you look at electric vehicles being sold in the U.S., sometimes they won't have a battery warmer, but they will have it when they're being sold to Canada. So that makes for the battery to be a lot more performing uh, in cold weather. And uh, I'm telling you, I've done hundreds of kilometers in very cold weather in Quebec and in Ontario for the past few years, and it's not an issue anymore. The federal government has indicated that this half a billion dollars um, of financing to EV production in Oakville will come from um, one of their their funds already um, already set up to help with green energy. It's a strate- strategic innovation fund. Um, mm-hmm. Can you speak to the timing of this? Because tonight is the deadline for uh, Unifor and Ford. They're in the midst of well, ne- negotiations. I think the timing is key because uh, actually Unifor is one of our members of EMC. Uh, so we've been, we've been having these discussions for a long time now. And uh, we were talking uh, to, to Jerry Diaz and uh, people at Unifor about the fact that, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the early 2000s where Canada was, uh, I think, the fourth biggest uh, car manufacturer in the world, and now they're down to 12th place. So if we don't, do that shift really quickly. I mean, not two or five years from now, but now, um, I mean, there might not be an automotive sector in Canada 10 years from now. So 
I think the timing is perfect because of these negotiations, because of the throne speech that's happening in two days. So mm-hmm. uh, time is now. How long would it take to, to switch over and retool a factory to make uh, EV uh, vehicles? Well, for that, I'm not the expert. So you would have to talk to the people at Unifor or Ford. But I guess at least a year or two. All right. Well, I want to thank you for your time, Daniel. It's been really informative, and it's such a big story. Um, Half a billion dollars sounds like a lot. But moving forward, this could bring a lot of money to not only the province, but to Canada. Exactly. All right. Thank you very much. This is Daniel Breton. He's CEO of Electric Mobility Canada. I want to thank our amazing uh, production team, uh, terrific writers, um, an exceptionally talented cast who I loved working with for six years, uh, including Emmy winner, my dear friend of many, many years, Catherine O'Hara, um, who evidently can make anyone she works with look good. Um, and as a dad, getting to work on camera for six years with both my kids, Daniel and Sarah. Hi, honey. Um, such a joy. Love you both and could not be prouder. All right, there's Eugene Levy accepting the award uh, for Best Actor, Comedic Actor for Schitt's Creek. Uh, it just it did something that no other uh, show has ever done at the Emmy Awards in its 72-year history. It swept the comedy section, which includes, you know, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Actor, Best um, uh, Writing Team. It goes on and on, and it is such a big win. I mean, they, basically, it, they were all in the same room. It was kind of cool to watch. I, the first... It was all comedy all the time, all Shit's Creek all the time off the off the hop of the Emmy Awards yesterday. And they were all um, together inside. It looked like a makeshift kind of enclosed patio at Casa Loma where um, at first I thought, oh, my gosh, uh, Dan uh, Levy and his writing partner accepted the award for script writing. And they both took off their masks and were hugging. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, COVID, guys. But at the end of the day, uh, found out the backstory on that. They had all tested a couple of weeks ago for COVID. Everybody came back negative. Everybody that came back negative then um, isolated for 14 days, and then they met there. So they were very, very safe, although they were wearing the masks. I feel like the masks were for the other people that might be come in and out of the room and also uh, just for the sake of America, because a lot of Americans were watching. But I wanted to talk about what this means for the Canadian film and television industry in general, because we know that it, Schitt's Creek was shot in Toronto with a, a Canadian cast and crew. And they just, I mean, it, it's such a success story. Christina Jennings joins the show now. She's a Canadian TV producer, CEO of Shaftesbury, creator of many award-winning um and globally exported shows such as Murdoch Mysteries. My mother is now going to be like, oh, you talk to the woman that uh, produces uh, Murdoch Mysteries. Uh, you know, I know that a lot of our parents tune into that. So uh, this is a big deal for Mrs. C. And uh, coming soon to, de- to uh, Global, another show called Departure. Welcome to the show, Christina. Thanks for being here. And thanks for, you know, putting me even farther ahead of my brother and my mom's good books. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Nice to be on the show. Okay, so this is such a big deal for, I mean, we already were on the map as one of the places where Americans were coming to produce a lot of the streaming shows. But this win, how important is it to the Canadian television and film industry? 
Oh, I think it's historic. I mean, this is a show completely born out of Canada. You know, this was commissioned by the CBC, developed by the CBC, completely pretty much financed out of Canada. So I think that this is a real win. Um, uh, you know, as Tatiana's Emmy was years ago for Orphan Black on an all-Canadian show. But the, the, the sort of, as you say, the scope of the win, I mean, it was, it was across every category, every single category. So I think for Canadian producers, you know, we can say, yeah, we can do shows as good as anybody else in the world. And Schitt's Creek really proved that last night. Is there any way that, because Americans don't like being second best normally. I mean, that's generally speaking. Is there any way this could backfire on us? Oh, I don't think so. No, I don't think so, Kelly. I think, you know, we, you know, the mantra is always, you know, the best show wins, you know, um, you know, and I think Americans will, you know, I mean, it's a great show. And, you know, they want the best show on their networks. So if, if the, some of the best shows are being created up here in Canada, then we better start buying those great Canadian shows. So, no, I, I don't see any way this can backfire. So do you um, suspect that we're going to see not only American uh, producers and, and writing teams come up here and look for Canadian talent and look for Canadian teams to film um, their shows, but also that maybe some networks or streaming services are going to come sniffing around shows that we've already had out in existence here in Canada for a while, looking to add them to their roster? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I mean, I think they're already, you, you know, people are already looking for talent anywhere in the world. And because America shoots so much of its content up here in Canada anyway, I think what they're starting to do now is go beyond just the crews, you know, who shoot the shows. They're looking at the directors, the actors, the writers, you know. And I think, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, as you say, the best show wins. I mean, we've got a show, as you noted, Kelly, coming on to Global with Archie Punjabi and Chris Plummer. It's coming in the next couple of weeks. And that's been picked up by Peacock in in the states and getting huge amount of attention. So, so I think, as I say, it's just such um, it's such a ringing endorsement for the work we've been doing, you know, up here, you know, on the creative side. Yeah. Um, when you say Peacock, I'm guessing you're talking NBC. I am indeed. <laughs> okay. Good. I don't know all the lingo, but I clearly know what the icon means. So yeah, it's, no, it's they've, well branded. They've, re- they've relaunched the Spot service as as Peacock, and uh, so yeah, even I'm getting used to the new name. All right. You know, the pandemic, we have managed it far better. I mean, that's an understatement, really, um, than our American neighbors. So how much of our industry is open again? How much production is going on right now during this pandemic? Well, um, there's quite a bit. Um, if I look at Shaftesbury, we're, we're in the process of shooting four shows right now, uh, one of which is Murdoch Mysteries. The other is Global Global's show uh, Departure 2, the second season of that, of that one I cited. Uh, so we're shooting four, and boy, it's a whole new world. Uh, you know, really the stress and the amount of protocols to keep everyone safe. You know, and as we know, you know, everybody's got to do the job. It doesn't matter how how good the protocols are. You know, you come to work, you know, you got to make sure you weren't out, you know, with a whole bunch of people on the weekend because, you know, you might get people sick. So it becomes a real social contract, I think, amongst absolutely everybody on these crews. So, so as I say, we are, we're very busy. I've, I've heard in town that uh, hard to get a crew right now because the Americans are up here full full speed. I mean, they are here, they are shooting, they are gobbling up all our crews because it's safer in Canada right now to shoot. 
You brought up Murdoch Mysteries, and as I said off the hop, you know, my mom's a big fan of the series. My father-in-law's a big fan of the series. And um, that series was at one point uh, canceled, and then they brought it back because of uh, how much the the outpouring of love that is, uh, you know, that the fan base was showing online and beyond that. uh, They thought, you know, let's bring it back again. So to hear that it's still in production, that is that's 14 a pretty years, huge success Kelly. story. We're, in, we're yeah. in our 14th year, and the numbers, the audience numbers, just continue to grow. And it's, not just in Canada, but around the world. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. So, um, you know, it's one of those things, like Schitt's Creek, I think those, those are two examples of shows that just hit something inside of us, you know, that, you know, in Schitt's Creek, you know, there's just such a great, uh, you know, as, as uh, Dan Levy said, it's about love, you know. It's about the power of love in that small town. And, uh, and Murdoch's just touched something. I think it just makes people, it's not so serious, it's not so dark. You can have a little chuckle, you know what I mean? Um, so every once in a while, there are shows like that that just come out, and it's great. It also speaks to, you know, um, sometimes the fact that the the companies don't understand what audience is going for. How much, because of what streaming has done now and our, our ability to choose on demand, how much is uh, the public's uh, quirky, maybe um, little niche um tastes coming into the equation and how has it changed how we produce shows well I, that's a that's a great question kelly you know here's the thing i mean when we were starting to make murdoch mysteries 14 years ago it wasn't very what's the word sexy it wasn't very glamorous we were making a standalone procedural show set at the turn of the century in toronto you know it wasn't you know it wasn't a limited series with big serialized arcs it was a feel good show and in the end of the day you know it may it may not go out and win an emmy murdoch mysteries you know what i mean but it it's got one of the largest followings, not only in Canada, around the world. So I think sometimes you do have to step back and say, this is what the audience wants right now. You know, they don't, they want to show where it's not serialized. They can pop in and out every other week. It doesn't matter. Um, and it just, it's not too, it, so, you know, it's not too dark. So I think it is important for us as producers when you're, you know, we're in the process right now of looking for the next show. How can you even, you know, you look forward a year or two and say, what do audiences want in a year or two? And part of it is looking at what they like now, and maybe there's a new take on it, some unique spin on it. So, you know, audiences have a lot of power. And your point about, you know, it, you know, Murdoch wasn't the only show that, that got canceled, and then the fans, you know, reached out and said, no, we don't want it to stop. So there mm-hmm. is power in audience. Sure. Happened with Family Guy as well. Yep. I mean, it's it's huge. So um, give us the elevator pitch of what Departure is all about, because it's coming to Global this fall. It is. It's um, it's the uh, the story of a plane that goes missing between um, JFK and London Heathrow. Um, and it, it was inspired by that Malaysian um, uh, plane that went missing about a few years ago. Um, and Archie Punjabi plays the lead crash investigator, um, and she He's works amazing. alongside Christopher Plummer. And yeah. in the end, over six hours, we figure out what, um, what happened with the plane. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of, of sort of what I call wheel of suspects or theories. And there are a lot of cliffhangers. And i got to tell you, by the end, I mean, when you say, oh, it's about a plane that goes missing, there's actually there's quite a bit of hope in this. So I won't spoil it. But, okay, um, good stuff. But, yeah, it, it's, it's really, it's quite a ride. It's quite a ride. 
Okay, and let me just close by asking you this, Christina. I mean, it, it occurred to me last night watching the Emmy Awards that we were watching the uh, traditional Hollywood um, award show blow itself up. I don't think it can ever go back to the um, to what it once was, that old kind of variety show, um, everybody's live in the audience. I don't know if we want it to go back. What do you think? I, I think, you've, again, it's an interesting thought. You know, we're looking at all these film festivals, all these award shows being handled in a different way. And it's just possible that we won't, we won't go back, that we've now actually created a hybrid, something that's more intimate in a way mm-hmm. uh, than those big shows. So um, uh, I, think, I think you're right. I think it'll be different next year. Christina, thank you so much for sparing some time with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, best of luck on your productions. I know you're filming Murdoch Mysteries, and best of luck with the ratings on Departure, because I think it looks like it's going to be great, especially with the trailer. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Kelly. Have a great day. You as well. That's Christina Jennings. She is a Canadian TV producer and CEO of Shaftesbury. You know Murdoch Mysteries, and soon you'll know Departure, so she is involved in both those projects. It was a heart-wrenching... News announcement that U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died Friday of complications from pancreatic cancer, which has had metastasized and she'd been battling it for ages. Uh, she passed away at the age of 87. And beyond losing such a champion of women's rights and minority rights in the states, what it does is it sets off this heated battle over whether Donald Trump will get his way and whether another Republican would be confirmed as a Supreme Court judge. Here to talk about it, Gloria Allred, who we've had on the show um, several times before in the past, and I just love it when she uh, gives so freely of her uh, time. She is one of the most uh, prominent women's rights attorneys on the globe. Welcome, Gloria. Good to have you on. Thank you very much for inviting me, Kelly. First of all, I want to give you uh pay you my condolences on the loss of uh ruth bader ginsburg tell me what she meant to you and i'm guessing you've met her a few times what it's like to be in her presence yes i have met her and thank you and i mean i'm heartbroken there are millions of others around the world that are heartbroken because i mean the words legal icon giant trailblazer superhero pioneer i I mean they're just some of the words that describe her. She was a voice in the beginning in the 70s for women's rights when she began to advocate before the United States Supreme Court. She was a lawyer um, and arguing and won most of the cases that she argued before the Supreme Court and then ultimately became a justice on the bench sitting there deciding cases involving women's rights. And she was a fierce fighter for gender equality and um, and I had the honor of meeting her um, a couple times at the United States Supreme Court when I was there for a special ceremony to honor a federal judge. And uh, I was it was a, a sponsored by uh, a foundation that honors him, uh, that, that honors that choice each year. And I went there and I was sitting there waiting for the court, uh, the justices to come in for the ceremony and they come in last, and she came in and all of a sudden saw me there and came over to me, which shocked me. And, and I stood up immediately, and we began to, to talk uh, and to chat. And she just was someone who was very, very interested in, 
you know, in, in, in women's rights and what was happening, not only in the court, but I had the opportunity to share a number of cases with her. And then uh, at a black tie dinner as well, I was uh, seated next to her, and so we had a wonderful conversation uh, about uh, what was happening, and I was able to share some of the cases we were bringing. Um, and uh, and so th- that was the person that she was. I, at the end of the conversation at the dinner, and I have some uh, wonderful photos of our sitting together there, um, she said that she had to go. It was 9 o'clock. The dinner was ending. And, and then she said, I have to go back to my office now to work. So, you know, I think she was 86 at the time, and there she was going back upstairs to her office in the Supreme Court building. And someone told me she often works till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. That was the work ethic that she had. And um, she was uh, a scholar and an advocate and more. And, and she understood that even though she was a dissenter in many cases and not in the majority, uh, that that dissent would one day perhaps help to persuade others in the court, you know, to change their opinions about gender equality and the rights of women. And she was fully committed to that. And, of course, Roe v. Wade, which is the landmark United States Supreme Court decision in which women uh, won the right, uh, the constitutional right to choose legal, safe, affordable, available abortions. And so that, of course, is very important. And all of that now is at risk. Um, I might add that when her granddaughter just said recently that her last wish, or RBG's last wish, was that she not be replaced until the next president is installed. That is just a wish that so many of us, you know, we would like to see fulfilled, her dying wish. Uh, But, of course, that's at risk now. Yeah, um, I saw Chuck Schumer yesterday outside her um, high school in uh, Brooklyn uh, talking about that, and that was the wish, and telling everyone to call their congressman and to make sure that uh, Donald Trump does not try and appoint a Supreme Court judge. Besides her being our, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for people that are just joining us right now, incredibly whip smart. I mean, she was so smart. Was her ability to speak the truth, frankly, um, without making things personal, that her her real skill set? Well. Again, the uh, it isn't person. You know, it isn't personal, and yet it is personal, because every decision involving women's rights and whether, you know, whether we're going to have access to justice, uh, or whether we're going to be denied justice solely on account of our gender, is personal in many ways. But yes, she was very civil, even to her opponents, like Justice Scalia, who was the polar opposite of everything that she stood for. And they were friendly, and she was always – and when I actually spoke with some other members of the U.S. Supreme Court at the reception, many of them often pointed out to me that even though they didn't agree with her on many opinions, that she was very cordial and civil and professional and kind is the word that I heard so many times uh, with her opponents. You know, the, it's the old you can disagree without being disagreeable. And that's the way she was. And yet she, she didn't give an inch where, where it came to women's rights, you know, and, and other rights. And so I think she was very much admired for all of that. It's a very scary way, time but, right now. Yeah, the yes. president is going to, uh, Trump, uh, uh, he said, appoint another woman. That's not enough. It's got to be the kind of woman that RBG was. And, uh, uh, you know, the word is it's not it's going to be the polar opposite, not somebody who firmly stands for the right to choose 
uh, abortion firmly stands for health care and access to health care and workers' rights. It's not going to be that type of woman. Now, we know that she was a dissenting voice on this uh, majority Republican uh, Supreme Court, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Can you tell us what um, is at risk right now if Trump gets his way? Because uh, without getting too political, I think it's important that people understand that this, to me, seems almost more important than the election, which sounds bizarre, but it could affect people for a longer amount of time. Can you speak to that? Well, you're absolutely right. Because a Supreme Court justice, once confirmed, will serve for the rest of her or his life, long before, long after the president who nominates that uh, nominee for the court uh, is no longer president. So if he appoints someone, you know, in their 40s, as is rumored that he might, that person could serve for another 40, 50 years. And that is, uh, you know, that is the danger and the danger also that the court will shift to the extreme right, potentially, and that we there'll be a rollback of all of the rights that we've been able to win, all of the rights that have been afforded uh, by previous Supreme Courts. Precedent could be undone. And, you know, we don't want to go back. We don't want the clock to re- be rolled back. Uh, we want to move forward. Uh, and this is it, we are at a turning point, and there's this is the highest stakes that we could have is this next appointment to the United States Supreme Court. Gloria, in your opinion, how important is Ruth Bader Ginsburg to young women in not only in you know the United States but globally as a role model? She is an icon, and she is the notorious RBG. She's a cultural hero, and that's something. And and and, and that's it, it. She is so wildly important to young women, older women, women of all races, women of all ethnic origins. And so we admire her, we love her, and we will fight on in her name. We love her her courage when they asked how many people, how many women should be on the Supreme Court. She said nine. And that shocked a lot of people. And some people say, what? And she said, no one's ever questioned the fact there were nine men on the United States Supreme Court. Why would they be shocked when she would say there should be nine women? If all of us were that uh, smart and able to convey uh, the truth in the same way, wouldn't the world be a different place? Gloria, I want to thank you for your time. I've been hearing the chimes throughout this conversation, and I know that you're high in demand, and I yeah, appreciate you spending some time that. with... No, I, I appreciate you spending some time with us. I I, re- I really do. I know you're a busy lady, and you always have time for us. So thank you once again, and, and my right, deepest uh, condolences. Right on. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Always a pleasure having you here. Don't forget to tell your friends that we podcast our show. And if you want to listen daily, we're on live. Global News Radio, 640 Toronto from 9 till noon. Have a great day. Cheers.